This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. Join them for two weeks digging up dinosaur bones from the Jurassic period in Northwest Colorado this summer. For details, go to cncc.edu slash dinodig. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we're doing our one-year anniversary podcast a little bit late. (laughs) (laughs) Better late than never. So first, I want to give a big thank you to everybody for listening. And it's about one year ago that a lot of you started listening. I know in the very early days, we had like maybe 20 or 30 listeners (laughs) (laughs) per podcast. But then luckily we got featured on iTunes and that bumped us way up and, you know, we got to the thousands of listeners level. Yeah. And now we're regularly interacting with at least some of you, which we really enjoy. So reach out to us whenever you want. It's been great. And we regularly post updates on Patreon as well. So you can go there and check out what's going on and what we're up to. We put some personal stuff on there so you can get to know us a little bit better. Yeah, you can find out ahead of time which dinosaurs we'll be covering. Yep. And if you'd like to learn more or you want to support us, you can go to patreon.com slash I know dino and you can watch our video, which we probably need to update because we have some awesome new equipment that our Patreon supporters helped us buy that isn't in the video yet. Yes. So knowing us, you can expect a new video in about a year. (laughs) (laughs) And just a reminder, we're doing a giveaway of a book titled The Dinosaur Lords. It's a joint giveaway between us and Everything Dinosaurs Weebly with Taylor McCoy. And you can tweet or go on Facebook or like some Google pages. So really easy to enter to win. We have the giveaway posted on our blog, and you have until Friday, March 4th to enter. So It's coming up. Yep. Make sure you go through the link on our website so that it gives you credit and enters you properly into the giveaway. In our first year, we had a ton of great interviews, and we want to give a huge thank you to everyone who agreed to let us interview them on our show. So a big thank you to Pete Larson, Anthony J. Martin, Phil Curry, Kieran Pym, Taylor McCoy, Matt Martignuk, Josh Cotton, Omri Michel, Jim Kirkland, Jack Horner, Brad Jost, the Saurian team, and Christopher Lohman. Yeah, they were all really great interviews, a pretty good diversity. We had some students, some long-known, renowned paleontologists, game developers, artists, another podcaster, writers, and just all-around dinosaur enthusiasts. Yep. It was a great first year that way. Yeah, we've learned a lot. It was also a really great year for dinosaur discoveries, and 
We talked about a lot of them, so just going to list off a few here. There's Cephaponosaurus, Siberosaurus, Conbarosaurus, Morelodon, Ptolemymus, Pulanosaura, Wendy Ceratops, Genuine Long, Hualian Ceratops, Dakota Raptor. Yeah, that was my favorite. <laughs> Probrachylophosaurus, and Ugrinolic, just to name a few that definitely doesn't cover all of them, but to be fair, there are 35. Yeah. <laughs> but all 35 of them are covered in our upcoming book, Top 10 Dinosaurs of 2015. So just like our Top 10 Dinosaurs of 2014, we took 10 dinosaurs that made news last year and wrote little fictitious scenes around them. And then this year, to include all the other 25 dinosaurs, we gave them honorable mention and wrote some short five facts about each. So you may have heard excerpts from the top 10 dinosaurs of 2015 on either Brad Joe's Jurassic Park podcast. He did an excerpt of Dakota Raptor, and we read one off on Genuine Long for our patrons on Patreon. Everything is written. It's going through the editing phase, and the book will be out soon. Yeah, and if you're at the top level of our Patreon supporters at the $20 level, you'll be getting a copy for free. Yep. Otherwise, you'll definitely be able to find it on Amazon. Yep. And Sabrina did a great job with the creative stories. I'm not going to take any credit for the <laughs> creativity of their Garrett, settings. Garrett does the fact-checking. Yeah. <laughs> making sure I'm not going too crazy with my imagination. I sit there and I say, are you sure? I don't know if it would have clucked or something. Yeah. <laughs> like, okay. hey, no, I never made them cluck. Let's... Actually, they probably could have clucked. Uh -oh. That was a bad example. <laughs> so without further ado, we're going to jump into some of our favorite news items. We picked kind of an eclectic group of 20 stories that we really liked, and they go through chronologically. So the first one is episode 11, and the last one goes through episode 61. And you'll hear a pretty big difference in audio quality and while we were figuring out what we were doing with our microphones i did manage to level all the audio so it's not going to get really quiet like some of the earlier episodes might have been but <laughs> <laughs> thanks again patrons for letting us get new equipment <laughs> yes so enjoy a new potential jurassic era underground dinosaur themed museum <laughs> Which is kind of a mouthful, but they're for short calling it Jurassica. So Jurassica is going to be really similar to the Eden Project, which is already open in the UK. And it's one of the five most visited sites in the UK. If you don't know about Project Eden, it's basically two large biodomes that are covered. And then they say there's a third uncovered biodome. And... Being inside these biodomes allows them to do a tropical environment, and then in the other one they do a Mediterranean environment, which obviously wouldn't usually be possible in England, but they're good for teaching kids and all that kind of stuff. So the Jurassica project is potentially going to cost about 80 million pounds. The man who runs Project Eden is already involved with it, and so all the renderings of Jurassica have kind of a similar look to them. They have the same hexagonal roof and structure for the light to pass through. David Attenborough is also involved, and the BBC News has a fun picture of him looking down on a set of what the Jurassic Cove might look like. Potentially, if all things go according to plan, this could be open in 2021, 
and it would be about 132 feet deep, and the total area would be about a third the size of the Millennium Dome, which, if you're in the UK, you're familiar with. So it's already been awarded with a 30,000-pound traffic study because one of the biggest problems you face with these new big projects is how to get everyone to and from it. So inside the cove, there's going to be an aquatic section, and there's also going to be some land to it. So there are potentially going to be animatronic dinosaurs as well as some animatronic prehistoric water life like ichthyosaurs or possibly, hopefully, something a little bigger would be really cool. So we really hope that that gets made soon. In Singapore, there's an area called Marina Square. If you live there, you're definitely familiar with it. It's right in the center of the most touristy part of town. And they're doing a giant balloon dinosaur event. It's just a whole bunch of dinosaurs made out of balloons as if the balloons were Lego bricks or something. It's really cool. We saw a version of one of these at Field Station Dinosaur in Secaucus, New Jersey. They had a little baby T-Rex made out of balloons. It's kind of like a huge balloon animal. It's pretty cool. In the news, to quote Brian Switek's book, My Beloved Brontosaurus, Brontosaurus may be back. Thank you to Mark from Minnesota for bringing this piece of news to our attention. For those who don't know, Brontosaurus is a dinosaur that was ruled to not be a dinosaur back in 1903. So what happened is in the late 1800s, there were two paleontologists, Cope and Marsh, who were rivals. They started what's now called the Bone Wars, and they took things to an extreme so much so that they spied in each other's camps and sometimes even destroyed fossils. What they did was they raced to find the most different types of dinosaurs. And in 1879, Marsh wrote about a dinosaur that had an 80-foot backbone and a large pelvis, which he named Brontosaurus, and that name in Greek means thunder lizard. However, two years earlier, he had found a very similar-looking dinosaur that he had named Apatosaurus, which means deceptive reptile. And in 1903, scientists ruled that these two skeletons were way too similar to be two different species of the same genus, so they were both grouped under the name Apatosaurus because Apatosaurus was named first. Now, even though this happened in 1903, Brontosaurus is very much a big part of pop culture, and so people who aren't familiar with dinosaurs often think that Brontosaurus is a dinosaur, and it actually made it onto postage stamps in the 1980s, so that didn't help. When I first started getting into dinosaurs, my favorite was Brontosaurus, and I was heartbroken to find out that Littlefoot in The Land Before Time is actually an Apatosaurus. But on Tuesday, April 7th, there were researchers from Portugal and the UK that have published a 300-page paper in the journal Peer J that, among other things, shows strong evidence that Brontosaurus is actually its own distinct species and genus. They use statistical analysis to calculate these differences between the Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus fossils, which many have been found in the past 15 years and they found that there were enough variations that Brontosaurus was, in fact, its own dinosaur. So they looked at 49 different fossils, and they found that the Apatosaurus had a bulkier neck, and Brontosaurus was a little more slender and had a longer bone in its ankles. 
According to Roger Benson, a professor at the University of Oxford and one of the co-authors of the study, he said, quote, The differences we found between Brontosaurus and Apatosaurus were at least as numerous as the ones between other closely related genera, and much more than what you normally find between species. Now, even though this paper was published in a peer journal, there's bound to be controversy. It's been over a hundred years of people correcting people saying, no, Brontosaurus isn't actually a dinosaur. So this may continue to be an issue for a while, but for people whose favorite dinosaur is the Brontosaurus, you can start arguing that it's back. One really neat-looking fossil is one that's been dubbed the Romeo and Juliet fossil. It has two oviraptors in it, and they're sort of in an embrace they're kind of wrapped around each other, and it's a really neat-looking combined fossil, and there's been lots of speculation about whether they were a mating pair if one of them was displaying for the other one, and why they were so close to each other. It appears that one was a male and one was a female based on differences in the skeletons, but it'll be interesting to see where the research leads. An article that was reported to us by our listener and former interviewee, Josh Cotton, and he pointed us to an article about stegosaurs swimming. So all of this information comes from the article, Could Stegosaurs Swim? Suggestive Evidence from the Middle Jurassic Track Site of the Cleveland Basin in Yorkshire, UK, which was published in the Geological Society of London for the Yorkshire Geological Society, and written by M. Romano and M. A. White, who passed away before it was published. So this study wasn't completely a new discovery, but it was a more detailed investigation into some tracks that were previously discovered in the Whitby area of the UK, and that's about an hour northeast of York and right on the eastern coast of England. So the tracks are described in the paper as swimming tracks, and they're all from the non-marine Saltwick Formation, and what makes them believe that they are Stegosaurus tracks is that they appear to come from the ichnotype of Delta Potus, which was previously described in other papers as a Stegosaurus. So just as some background, what an ichnotype refers to is the field of science called ichnotaxa, and that can include ichnogenera and ichnospecies, because, you know, Taxa is just the broad term for the category, and it can vary in its specificity. So, ichnotaxa means track ordering in Latin, and it refers to basing a taxon, like a species or a genus, from the, quote, work of an organism. And basically that means if you have tracks from an animal, but you haven't previously represented those tracks linked to a known species or genus, you can name a species just based on the tracks or some other non-fossilized animal matter. So the authors point out that in most cases, tracks that are made by dinosaurs and that are recovered later are made by dinosaurs while they're walking or running on land. So the researchers are quick to point out that in the past, it's been discussed that a stegosaurus may have had a lot of difficulty swimming because they have those large plates on their back and they also have spikes on their tail, which can make it difficult to swim but they believe that their research is good enough evidence to show that stegosaurs actually could swim and probably did it fairly often. What they did was they were looking at these tracks where it appears that a stegosaurus walked into some water and then began to swim. 
There's one single piece of fossilized rock that has the path from land into the water, and you can see the transition of the footprints. And then there are separate fossils that just have swimming fossilized prints. So when I first heard it, I was wondering how you can have a fossilized track of an animal swimming when obviously, usually when you're swimming, you're not touching ground. But what they're talking about is swimming in just deep enough water that your feet just barely graze the ground below the water enough to leave a small track mark. They also point out that in tracks that are on land, the toes kind of radiate out from a central point and When I hear that, I think of the characteristic T-Rex footprint in Jurassic Park that the water was vibrating in and how, you know, the three toes kind of point outwards from the one point. But in swimming tracks, they tend to look parallel to one another. And that's because when you're doing a swim stroke, you push back and it would just be like the tips of the toes grazing in a path and not a full print of the entire foot. So they found some prints that look like these parallel marks and they match the same size and pattern as the prints that are not parallel from the land. And then they also found that the material that was fossilized to make the footprint was composed of material that would have only been found in lakes, specifically lakes, not rivers and not floodwaters. And they think that's significant because if a stegosaurus is swimming through just a typical lake, That means that it would have probably done it as a normal practice. If it was swimming through floodwaters or swimming through a river, it may have just done it to get from one place to another or to get out of a bad situation. But if it's doing it in a lake, that means that it's probably doing it just because it's one of the things it does. (laughs) They also noted that they never found any track marks from its front legs. And that may have been because when it was swimming, since its front legs are shorter than its back legs its front legs wouldn't have touched the ground when it was swimming. And it's also because it needed to keep its head above water. So if it kept its head out of the water, it would have had to raise its front legs up a little bit higher. And it gave them some ideas for what it might have looked like while it was swimming. There's a new show called T-Rex Autopsy. And (laughs) this show is supposed to be about them dissecting a somehow preserved 43-foot-long T-Rex and the different experts that they have there. The trailer looked pretty cool because they actually made this huge dinosaur. And then they actually did a publicity stunt in London where they drove it around on the back of a flatbed truck going by Trafalgar Square, the House of Parliament, London Bridge, and Buckingham Palace. So there are all these pictures all over the internet of this weird dinosaur under a sheet (laughs) uh, on the back of a truck. Kind of a funny little article titled, Enjoy Water? You're drinking dinosaur pee. And it was actually published as a video, and it describes the statistics behind where water molecules have been in the past. Archimedes, (laughs) jumping to a totally different topic, Archimedes supposedly took a bath a long time ago, and he, while laying in the tub, discovered buoyancy. And he supposedly jumped out of the tub and yelled Eureka and ran through town because he had figured out how buoyancy works. When I was in college, we did a little exercise where we figured out how many molecules in a glass of water came from a bathtub, specifically Archimedes bathtub. So if you say there's 50 gallons of water in the tub by the number of gallons in the world and all that, you can kind of estimate it. And it works out to be about six molecules in a glass, but there are a lot of molecules in a glass, so that's not very many. 
This article goes a lot more in-depth into it than a simple number of gallons divided by the total number of gallons on Earth. And part of that is because different areas of water exist on the planet. So there's the polar ice caps, there's the oceans, there's waters, or there's lakes, there's streams, and all this stuff. And water gets trapped in these different areas for long periods of time before it makes it over into another area. So the polar ice caps can hold water for thousands of years and Because of that, humans haven't really had enough time to go through all the water on Earth. If it takes tens of thousands of years to get out of the ice caps and humans have only had a really high population for a couple thousand years, we haven't really drank in all the water yet. But dinosaurs did (laughs) because dinosaurs were around for such a long time and they drank so much water and ate so much plant life that was full of water, they almost certainly got through just about every molecule that is on Earth. Just playing devil's advocate, I feel like I have to point out a couple of little (laughs) side notes. So not all the water that's here now was around at the time of dinosaurs. Comets bring water in small amounts to the Earth, and then the water cycle isn't as simple as just water goes one place and goes another place. Water and carbon dioxide are combined to make sugar and oxygen in the plant photosynthesis cycle, so it's not the same water that a dinosaur had had because it's been turned back into oxygen, so it's really more accurate to say that you're drinking the same hydrogens and oxygens that were around back when dinosaurs were around. In an interview with Wired Industrial Light and Magic's senior video effects supervisor, Dennis Murin, explains why they chose to use motion capture in the recent Jurassic World movie. So it's pretty unusual to use motion capture with things that aren't humans. (laughs) Usually you use it in like capturing stunts or you'll use it to capture something like the golem character in Lord of the Rings moving around and then they map it. But if you're doing something like a dragon or a dinosaur, one of these big monsters or something, it's more common to just make the CGI rendering without any motion capture because it doesn't come easily from the motion capture. Dennis points out that although talented animators can add a lot of detail to moving creatures, using motion capture gave the animals in Jurassic World their own personality as a real person moved around, and it added subtle differences and complexity to the characters that you wouldn't really ever see if they were just modeled and animated without the motion capture. He believes that their motion capture of these dinosaurs has set a new bar for realism, and he thinks there are a couple of things that cause that. So the actors, while they're pretending to be dinosaurs, are impacted by gravity and their environment and other laws of physics, that make them move much more realistically than if you put it in a computer and you can make it do whatever you can imagine. So he says that it kind of adds a feeling of weight to the characters because as they walk, you can see their weight shifting in the exact way you would expect it to rather than, you know, sometimes they look like they're floating or just effortlessly moving in other films. For the four raptors in the movie, they actually cast four different actors and they would always use the same actor for each raptor which gave continuity of the characters, which I just loved. Then they would work on matching how the human's movements would relate to a dinosaur, and then they brought it all together into a form that they could use. Finally, the last thing that they did to make it a little more realistic is they mapped skin over tissue on the dinosaurs 
to give them a more realistic look, which they think paid off in a big way, especially on Indominus Rex, and I tend to agree. Sabrina and I finished Lego Jurassic World, and we have quite a bit to say about it. I think this has the potential to be the best Lego game in terms of being able to smash and the storyline and everything, except that it is so glitchy. Yeah, so we played it on Steam, which is the PC version of the game. It's gotten pretty popular. I mean, they sell a lot of PC game versions of it, but it's also released on Xbox and PlayStation and half a million other things. So if you're playing it on a different system, you might not have the issues that we had, but we had a ton of issues. (laughs) Even from starting the game, sometimes it wouldn't start and you'd have to restart it over and over and over again, and eventually it would get going, like trying to start a 50-year-old car. (laughs) except it's a game that you just bought that's brand new. There was one glitch where the first time you get a Triceratops, I think we might have mentioned it, it glitched and it was permanently running in one direction and you couldn't do anything about it, so you had to exit the level and start all over again. Yeah, Sometimes you'd be in the middle of a level and for whatever reason the character would just fall out of the game. Yeah, like if you've ever played a game where you fall through the map, And you're in like that weird empty matrix world where it's just black floor, white sky, and you're just falling perpetually. And then you got to exit again, and that's super frustrating. all over. And then it didn't always save. Yeah, it didn't always save either. Apparently, people have had issues with corrupt save games, which would be kind of heartbreaking Mm -hmm. (laughs) to have to start all over again. There was one time we were in a battle between two of the dinosaurs, and we kept doing the same button combo and it would do its little attack and then it would just do it again and again and again and after about 10 of them we thought i think something went wrong here (laughs) so we exited and got back in and then finally there was an extra button that wasn't showing up for some reason and then we could finish it but when it is working well and we play as the dinosaurs it's awesome yeah it was great It had a lot of really good dialogue. The first movie, so it goes through all four movies, and you can do them, you have to do the Jurassic Park series sequentially, but you could do Jurassic World earlier if you wanted to. But the original Jurassic Park used all the dialogue, just cut clips from the original movie. And I think because they did it that way, it was a little bit echoey and not as clear as some of the other dialogue. The fourth movie, the Jurassic World, actually had original dialogue recorded by Chris Pratt and some of the others. So it fit perfectly where they would say like, oh, what's going on with that pipe or whatever, rather than just clips. So that was probably the best put together one. And then, of course, they had the iconic scenes and then typical Lego humor. So none of the characters die in the games. They just get swallowed up and spit out or they're living in a creature's stomach for a while or something. And I think one of my favorites is, um, I forget the character's name, where in the first movie in Jurassic Park, and it, he is fending off the raptors, and he's got that line, says, clever girl. <laughs> yeah. And in the game, it's because the raptor has filled his gun with a banana and then pops up out of the bushes with a bunch of fruit on its head. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a good one. I also liked um, the scene where they're going to turn the power back on in the basement or in like some shed somewhere, And Dr. Ellie goes and switches the power, and then she feels an arm on her shoulder, and she's all relieved. And in the movie, it's just an arm. The rest of the body is missing. 
but in the Lego version, it's a a sleep version of him. <laughs> of Samuel L. Jackson's yeah. character. Yeah, and he just kind of falls over rather than, you know, having a disattached arm, which is kind of <laughs> funny seeing how they piece together some of, like, the horror genre and make it just kind of funny. The dinosaurs in the game are awesome. And when you play through the regular game, you get to play as quite a few of them, like an Ankylosaurus. Triceratops. Pachycephalosaurus. T-Rex. Quote-unquote Velociraptor. Compies. Yeah, compies. (laughs) But when you really get to play as them is in the free play. So when you go through the levels, you find little pieces of amber with a mosquito in it. And that allows you to play as the dinosaur when you leave the level. And Sabrina's favorite, of course, is the sauropods. Well, sort of. One quick thing is a couple of these dinosaurs also come with baby versions of the dinosaurs. So there's baby <laughs> Triceratops, baby T-Rex, baby Velociraptor, which is adorable and just hops around. <laughs> so the one sauropod, we haven't gotten all of the dinosaurs yet. We've beaten all the levels, but we're still working through the free play stuff. And Brachiosaurus is an amazing dinosaur. It's huge when you're playing it. The little Lego people look so tiny. Um, mm-hmm. You can smash anything so easily but it walks very slowly (laughs) as i'm sure it did in real life so score one for realism but in a game (laughs) can get very frustrating very quickly so i would like to see a baby version of the brachiosaurus maybe that would go a little bit faster (laughs) yeah and it would be cuter also Mm -hmm. the baby t-rex is adorable because it kind of hops from one leg to the other so (laughs) when you're doing it you can't help but go like (laughs) you can also unlock some of the pterosaurs we haven't gotten any of them yet and i think the mosasaur from jurassic world as well the story is interesting so It's broken up into five individual levels for each game, so it's a total of 20 levels. And they did a really good job of condensing an entire movie basically into five scenes, more or less. Sometimes they would kind of take a jump in the middle of it, but it was never really jarring, with a possible exception in Jurassic World, but I don't want to throw any spoilers in this episode, so I won't go into any detail. But they did a really good job, and it was fun to see how they kind of combined certain plot lines so that it kind of connected up and everything. Overall, it was a really fun game. They have all the characters and all of the recent LEGO games. Individual characters have special abilities, and in this one they added a feature where when you're switching characters, it tells you what all their abilities are which was one of the frustrations of earlier Lego games where you would try to remember, like, who has that wrench? And you would, like, switch through a bunch of characters or Google it or whatever. In this one, you could, when you're in the character selection, it tells you right there. Oh, and there's a lot of really cool vehicles. So you can use that gyrosphere from Jurassic World or the motorcycle. They have the original Jeep from the movie, as well as the one that follows the rails that gets smashed in by the T-Rex. Lots of cool cars and stuff. So overall, I think... As a dinosaur enthusiast, it's a great game. As a polished game, at least on computer, is pretty. <laughs> it could use some improvement, but true. But like all Lego games, you get a lot of joy out of smashing everything. Yeah, and another a reason Sabrina and I play so many of these games is there aren't that many good games for two people to play in the same room. Most of them are either focused on online or single player, and this one is a really good co-op two-player game. So, if you're looking for a good two-player game, it's a good choice. This episode is brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College. 
where you can become a part of the scientific process. As a participant, you can go on a real-life dinosaur dig and you'll be helping to advance science and our understanding of the ancient world. What's really cool is that the fossilized bones that are being excavated, they're public and they're going to be displayed and preserved for future generations to study and admire. Yeah, we've mentioned how that's a really important part of the scientific process, not just getting them out and describing them once, but keeping them and preserving them so that future questions and future scientists can take a look at those bones to answer new questions and validate results. And the site is special and also near and dear to me because it's in the Morrison Formation, known for the sauropods, mm -hmm. of course, of the Jurassic time. And it represents one of the best bone beds ever found in the saltwash member. Yeah, the current interpretation is that the site was the result of a Brachiosaurus sort of jamming up a river and then other carcasses piling up behind it. Oh, no. And that's how we got a bunch of different types of dinosaurs all fossilizing together. So, oh, no, but also, yay. <laughs> Good for us as scientists. <laughs> mm -hmm. And dinosaur enthusiasts. Yes. So there are two scheduled digs if you want to get involved with getting these bones out of the ground. You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash dinodig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash dinodig, D-I-N-O-D-I-G. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be Continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. An article that comes out of Nature's Scientific Reports titled Molecular Composition and Ultrastructure of Jurassic Paravian Feathers. And it was written by Johan Lindgren and some others. So scientists have been trying to figure out what color dinosaur feathers were ever since they realized that dinosaurs had feathers. And up until about 2010, the conventional wisdom was that we might not ever find out because a lot of the signature proteins and indicators of what color something is don't really survive the fossilization process. As you know, fossilization completely replaces a lot of the material with various minerals. So it's never the same color as it was when it was fossilized. It usually turns black or, you know, a dark stone color. <laughs> it's not like, you know, a feather gets fossilized and you pull it out and it's a bright blue feather or something. It's always just remnants of what it originally was. So there have been quite a few publications about the structure of melanosomes. And just for a little background, melanosomes are small cells that in mammal hair and bird feathers dictate the color of the hair and feathers. So scientists know that the rod-shaped eumelanosomes are found in black feathers and circular pheomelanosomes store pigment in red feathers. So what they do is they try to look for these different melanosomes under really high power magnification when they're looking into the structure of the feather 
And in the past, they think that they may have found some of these melanosomes. Unfortunately, this technique won't work for some of the other colors since they're caused by specific proteins that break down more easily rather than melanosomes and they do not fossilize very well. But up until about five years ago, we weren't even thinking about melanosomes and the possibility of them fossilizing. So maybe they'll come up with some other way to find out if dinosaurs were ever bright yellow or pink or something. So melanosomes have been found on several fossilized dinosaur feathers, as I mentioned, but more cautious paleontologists and scientists pointed out that lots of bacteria is similar in shape to these melanosomes. It's basically just, if you've ever seen the shape of E. coli or any of these kind of long, skinny bacteria, it's not really anything exciting. And then the other one that's just round shape alone doesn't really tell you too much. So there's a good point to be had there. So... That's really where this article picks up. The scientists based in Lund University used chemical analysis in this case to test the area where they believed eumelanosomes were in a well-preserved fossil. So they started by removing samples from the plumage surfaces of their selected fossilized trudontid theropod, or avialin, depending on which research you prefer. Originally, most of the people were saying it was a trudontid, and now they're saying basically it could be a predecessor to a bird that wasn't really a dinosaur anymore. But in any event, it's got those feathers still on that same path of feather evolution. So they picked the best-looking samples that they could get out of this fossil, and they put them under an SEM, which is a scanning electron microscope, and they found something that they thought could potentially be eumelanosomes. So then they took some other samples and the same sample and all these samples (laughs) and put them under a tunneling electron microscope, or TEM, and they looked at the structure of the potential feather, and they were pretty satisfied that it looked like a feather. It had the right pattern and the right structure and size and all that kind of stuff. But that's when they got into the new stuff. So they used time-of-flight secondary ion mass spectrometric imaging analysis, or TOF-SIMS, which we've mentioned before on this podcast, but you might not remember because it's quite a mouthful, as well as energy dispersive X-ray, or EDX, microanalysis. And they used those in combination with infrared microspectroscopic measurements. And they show all of these analyses, these chemical analyses, next to a known eumelanosome so that they could compare the chemical structure. And they got really good matches. Actually, some of those newer tools like the time of flight sims I hadn't really seen before I started reading some of these papers But I did get into some infrared spectrometry when I was in college and, you know, we had to compare these different patterns to figure out what things were made out of. And the comparison that they show in there is pretty compelling. They do look really similar. So I think most scientists looking at it would say that it does look like a eumelanosome based on the chemistry. So then the scientists added a few more comments about how the structure matches melanosomes and not bacteria, and they use that with the chemical evidence to say that they believe, quote, our integrated structural and direct chemical approach provides compelling evidence that eumelanosomes and endogenous eumelanin pigment are preserved in the feather remains of YFGP-T5199. That's the trudontid that I mentioned earlier. This result adds to a growing chronicle of molecular eumelanin detection in fossils and demonstrates the aptitude of rigorous experimental techniques for identifying ancient biomolecules and their use in characterizing quote-unquote 
paleo colors. So that's a really roundabout way of saying they think this bird had black feathers or pre-bird or trudonted. But yeah, good science shows some good progress in the understanding of colors. I really hope they figure out a way to find these other colors. Even though now they're saying they can't, I would love to hear about a bright pink dinosaur or bright blue or yellow or something other than just red and black. We've got an update on The Cube, Queensland University of Technology's interactive learning display. The team will bring five Australian dinosaurs to life, including Banjo, the Australovenator, and the herbivore Mutaburosaurus. Sean Druitt, the Cube studio manager, said Banjo would have been, quote, a cross between a cassowary, a Komodo dragon, and the African wild dog. The Cube will open to the public in December, complete with 10 dinosaur species, quote, separated into front and back paddocks by a virtual fence. Should be entertaining, and if we ever make it to Australia, we will definitely have to go and see it. Diplodocus wasn't the only sauropod whose tail could potentially break the sound barrier. Researchers have made a model of an apatosaurus tail out of aluminum, stainless steel, neoprene, and Teflon. It's 12 feet or 3.6 meters long, which is only about a quarter the size of an actual apatosaurus tail. But it's true to scale and can break the sound barrier. This is according to Nathan Mirvold, the CEO of Intellectual Ventures and leader of the team who made the tail. Nathan and his team showed the model at the Society of Vertebrate Paleontology Conference. And though the tail took nine months to design and build and test, And interestingly, it's attached to a camera tripod in lieu of a quote-unquote dinosaur butt. Nathan has been working on sauropod tails for the last 20 years, and he even co-wrote a study with Dr. Philip Curry in 1997 that suggested that Apatosaurus and other sauropods could break the sound barrier with their tails based on a computer model that they made. However, paleontologist Kenneth Carpenter at the time said that he didn't really believe the computer model, and he would be more accepting of this theory if there was a scale model. But he also still has some problems with this new scale model, such as the fact that the tail is currently more flexible than a real sauropod's tail, and there's no skin and muscle that could potentially limit the tail's motion. So there's still some debate on whether or not the tail could actually break the sound barrier, but Nathan and his team plan to keep working on the model to make it more accurate. And luckily nowadays, making these kinds of models is much easier to create than, say, 20 years ago, and this is because we can now scan fossils and print 3D replicas. There was a new study presented at the Geological Society of America annual meeting in Wyoming that found that T-Rexes may have been cannibals. This is based on fossils found in the Lance Formation in Wyoming. These bones that they found had deep grooves, like from a large animal, and teeth marks with ragged edges, like a T-Rex's. There have been other studies that have suggested that T-Rex was a cannibal, Studies from 2007 and 2010 found that tyrannosaurs used their neck muscles to swallow animals whole, up to 110 pounds, and strip off flesh with its jaws. Also, T-Rex coprolites have been found where one-third of the mass of the coprolite was made up of broken pieces of bone, which suggests that T-Rex had a fast metabolism. So, maybe they were cannibals, maybe there's another explanation, but one thing is certain is that T-Rex ate very often in order to live due to their fast metabolism and... Also, seems like they had no patience to chew. (laughs) (laughs) Next in the news is another article. This one's titled, Estimating Cranial Musculoskeletal Constraints in Theropod Dinosaurs. And it was published in the journal Royal Society Open Science. It was written by Stephen Lautenschlager. So, if you're like me, 
you might find yourself often defending T-Rex's tiny arms to friends. And this is probably one of the most common things people bring up to me when I mention that I have a dinosaur podcast. They'll ask, like, why are T-Rex's arms so small? It's so stupid. Why didn't it have bigger arms? And then I always get out a picture of a T-Rex, and I show the center of mass. And I'm like, well, its legs are here, and its tail was really big, but still, it had such a huge skull that it would have fallen over if it had big arms. And then people say, but wouldn't bigger arms help more than having a huge head? You know, it seems like it would really suck to have such little arms. My answer tends to be something like, well, maybe not, because its head was so awesome that it didn't even need arms. It could just rip off chunks and eat them that way. So that's pretty related to this article. <laughs> so the study basically sought to see how some of the best-known theropods use their mouths and whether or not their mouth's capabilities matched with our assumed behaviors based on other details that we know about the dinosaurs like teeth. So specifically, Lautenschlager made digital 3D models of a T-Rex, Allosaurus, and a Therizinosaur, and as a proof of concept, he also included a modern bird of prey as well as a crocodile. He then added muscles to the skull models based on likely attachment points to simulate how their mouths would have moved. And his primary way of doing this was to simulate strain on the muscles when they were opened and comparing that to the strain of current kind of established maximum. Although there's a little bit of disagreement there, he used 170% strain as a maximum. And then he used kind of an ideal number that's a little bit more agreed on. This would give the maximum angle that the dinosaurs could open their mouths, which he hoped would give them a little insight into how they ate. So his model is really sensitive to the muscle resting length, and that's basically the amount the animal's mouth is open at rest. So you can think of a crocodile when it's laying there and its mouth is partly open and it looks really scary. It's probably actually doing that because the way its muscles are structured, that's the easiest place for its mouth to rest. It's not like, oh, it's about to bite something. It's actually just at rest with its mouth a little bit open. So he modeled at 3 and 6 degrees because at 9 degrees, it lost a lot of its biting force, and the resting angles of 3 and 6 degrees matched pretty closely between his crocodile model and what real crocodiles can open their mouths to. So there's lots of gloriously nerdy stuff in the article that shows what software he used and the different strain profiles at the gape angles, and we'll post a link to it on our blog, but just to summarize, Allosaurus recorded the largest gape angle at 79 to 92 degrees when reaching maximum tension limit, which was quite a bit larger than the T-Rex of 63.5 to 80 degrees. And at the 92 degrees that the Allosaurus skull got to, the picture of it reminded me of a snake because it's open so wide. I mean, it's past 90 degrees, so it's huge opening. And that would just be terrifying in real life to see that kind of thing coming at you. The Therizinosaur only got to a comparatively small 43.5 to 49 degrees before reaching its maximum tension limit. So the three theropods he studied all are generally thought to have different feeding styles. Specifically, the T-Rex is thought to have had a powerful bite and strong teeth that it used in a puncture and pull method to crush bone and soft tissues. The strain model shows that the T-Rex would have maintained a powerful bite throughout the range of motion, which could have allowed it to have that bone-crushing ability that we've heard about, so there wasn't any conflict there. With the Allosaurus, it had a comparably weak bite, 
and it's thought that with its weaker jaw muscles, it would have used its neck muscles in combination and used a strike and tear method that has already been partially validated by its jaw joint configuration, which showed that it could have these really wide mouth openings without the risk of dislocation. And obviously, this article showed that it could open its mouth really far, so that's further support. And then finally, the Therizinosaurian, with its relatively small gape, also makes sense, as they point out that living mammalian carnivores typically have much wider bites than herbivores, which matches the assumptions made about their small, densely packed, leaf-shaped teeth, indicating that it was probably an herbivore, so that also matches. He did mention that his models are simplified and they don't account for his muscles routing around other bones or muscles, but he believes that it's a good comparison tool. And considering his results already have a fair amount of sensitivity to the resting gape angle, it doesn't seem like these slight omissions in his model would have been a huge issue. So Lautenschlager hopes that this technique could be applied to different muscle configurations and interactions in the future. And obviously we could use similar models on other dinosaurs to get ideas about their behavior as well. And next in the news, thanks to Marky from Facebook and Chris from Twitter for sharing the links to this story with us. More than 100 sauropod tracks from the Middle Jurassic have been found on the Isle of Skye by researchers from the University of Edinburgh. Dr. Steve Brissett led the team, and it's an exciting find because not many fossils have been found yet from the Middle Jurassic period, which was 174 to 164 million years ago. But a lot happened during that time. Pangaea started to break apart into the continents we live on today. Desert areas became flooded and tropical, and many animals either died out or adapted such as new reptiles spreading out in the oceans, mammals rapidly evolving, birds possibly first took wing then, and tyrannosaurs and stegosaurs started to appear then. There's a lot of fossils found from the early and late Jurassic, according to Steve Brissett, though, which makes it frustrating to not know as much about the middle Jurassic. And according to the BBC article, which is this wonderful kind of mix of film and imagery and text, and we'll be posting the link on our blog, uh, quote, Sky is one of the few places in the world that has fossil-bearing rocks from the period, meaning new discoveries made here have the potential to answer some of the major questions scientists have about how life forms evolved the way they did, end quote. The first dinosaurs found in this area was in 1982 of an iguanodon-like ornithopod footprint. It was 18 and a half inches or 47 meters long. And since then, bones of sauropods, theropods, and an armored... Thyreophoran, which is a group that includes stegosaurs and ankylosaurs, have been found. And in 2002, a local woman found a small ornithopod footprint while walking her dog. Fifteen other footprints were found, all in the original rock strata, which makes it easier to figure out when exactly they're from. Neil Clark from the Hunterian Museum in Glasgow said he thought they were from a dinosaur similar to Megalosaurus. A lot of the finds on Skye have been found by Dugal Ross, who has been collecting fossils on the island for nearly 40 years and set up the Staffen Museum. One fossil he found, according to BBC, was the footprints of an adult theropod with 10 smaller individual footprints, which suggests a parent that took care of its children. So the big find on the Isle of Skye was Steve Brousset, Tom Challens, and their team, which included Shana Montanari, who we talk a lot about her article. She writes great ones on Forbes. And Mark Wilkinson were looking for more ichthyosaur fossils from the Middle Jurassic. But they ended up coming across some strange lumps in the ground, which were hundreds of sauropod footprints, some of them up to 28 inches or 70 centimeters across. 
in Duntholm on the Isle of Skye, which is an area known for footprints. These footprints formed trackways. They weren't just isolated footprints from back legs and front legs. And because these footprints were in the rocks where the original prints were made and not broken off and detached from their original site, they can tell paleontologists a lot about the sauropods' environment, such as how they behaved and possibly even how they changed. These footprints were probably from primitive sauropods. They had large thumb claws and straight digits on their feet. But the team needs to study the prints more to determine exactly what type of sauropods they were. Right now, they estimate they're similar to the group's Breviaropus and Parabrontopus. These are both ichnogenuses, which is defined as a taxon based on the fossilized work of an organism. Maybe you recall in episode two when we interviewed Dr. Anthony J. Martin, he's an ichnologist, and he studies not the fossils of dinosaurs, but things that they left behind, such as footprints. So what's really interesting about this discovery is to give a little bit of history. Scientists originally thought that sauropods were semi-aquatic because they were too heavy for land and that they spent a lot of their time in swamps. And we've talked about in previous episodes that uh, Brachiosaurus, for example, scientists thought they lived in swamps or hung out in swamps. But then in the 1960s and 70s, paleontologists learned more about sauropod posture and growth and then concluded, no, they were actually land animals. But these newly found sauropod footprints in the Isle of Skye were from what was a marine lagoon at the time. And this has led Steve Prusset and his team to rethink how sauropods lived. They wrote in their paper in the Scottish Journal of Geology that these footprints provide evidence that sauropods lived in a submerged lagoon for many generations, and these lagoons could have helped them maybe cool down or protected them against predators. The site of the trackways, therefore, is pretty important, and it will probably be pretty eye-opening in terms of how sauropods lived and how animals in the Middle Jurassic lived. And like Sabrina said, their internet page about this that I think the BBC hosts is really awesome. It's got cool little animations of dinosaurs and lots of videos and a lot of cool stuff going on. So if you're looking for something to look at online, definitely check it out. According to Variety, the good dinosaur may be Pixar's first box office failure. To break even, the company must earn $500 million, but so far it's only made about $131 million worldwide. This was a few days ago, maybe a, maybe about a week and a half ago by the time this episode gets posted. And some people think that it might not make it to $400 million. But The Good Dinosaur has gotten some really great reviews, especially from kids. Actually, The Independent posted a seven-year-old boy's review who opened with, quote, I must mention first that I love dinosaurs, so The Good Dinosaur review will be a good review, end hmm. quote. And he goes on to give a synopsis of the movie and mentions, quote, The most funny part was when Arlo and Spot ate the fruits from the tree and were laughing until their bellies hurt. They swapped their bodies and heads. That was super cool. And he ended his review with, quote, The Good Dinosaur was the best animation I've ever seen. So as Garrett and I have mentioned before, we think that The Good Dinosaur is a really great movie for kids. But interestingly, not every kid loved the movie. And on Tor.com, they posted the reaction of an eight-year-old girl to the movie who thought it was too scary since it looked so realistic and was crying because of Arlo's dad. Still, the movie is known for its beautiful animation, especially the environments. And according to FX Guide, all the environments are 3D geometry that's rendered. And the technical team used a lot of tools, including RenderMan, Houdini, Flip Solver, and Presto. 
and they built more than 180 fully volumetric skies for all the types of weather to make the weather seem like character, as well as 3,500 simulations and 20 terabytes of data just for the vegetation. I won't get into too much detail since our show's about dinosaurs, not animation, but for the artists listening to the show, we'll post a link so you can check it out. And Josh Cotton, a paleo artist who you may remember we interviewed back on episode 21, and who has also created an amazing Allosaurus for us. We've posted it on our Twitter and blog, if you want to check that out. He recently released an awesome new video on his YouTube channel, The Doodling Dino. He does a great job of combining both science and art into his dinosaurs. He has a number of really good videos on his channel that you should check out. And his latest video is called Scientific Artist Reimagines the Good Dinosaur. It's a little under 19 minutes long, and we'll post a link to it on our blog. And during the video, you can see him create a digital sculpture of a reimagined Arlo. And as he recreates Arlo, he explains the science of the good dinosaur and points out the things that the movie missed. For example, Arlo, the Apatosaurus, would have been extinct long before the movie took place, since Apatosaurus went extinct about 80 million years before the asteroid hit Earth, or missed Earth as it did in the good dinosaur. And because of this, Josh chose to make Arlo an Alamosaurus, which we covered Alamosaurus in episode 51. And to do that, Josh made Arlo's front legs longer than his back legs, which also makes Arlo stand taller. And he also changed Arlo's feet to be more hoof-like and added osteoderms to Arlo's back, since Alamosaurus had them. And the idea is to keep in mind the scientific knowledge about a dinosaur before even starting to design the dinosaur, but also since the good dinosaur is a cartoon, to keep the character cute. So in this case, Josh made Arlo's osteoderms have more rounded edges to keep it more playful. And according to Josh, and I agree, the movie missed an opportunity by not really incorporating science into the character designs. As Josh says at the end of the video, quote, the magic of dinosaurs is they are real. And I like the idea of having it make sense in a time space because there are so many cool dinosaurs to choose from. Why do you want to pick one that doesn't make sense in the time scale? Yeah. As much as I like Apatosaurus. <laughs> yeah, off by several, what was it? Off by like 60 million years or so. 80 million, yeah. Oof. Yep. So thank you to Josh for sharing that video with us. And if you like to watch YouTube videos, then you should definitely subscribe to his channel, The Doodling Dino. Next in the news is an article titled Theropod Courtship. Large-scale physical evidence of display arenas and avian-like scrape ceremony behavior by Cretaceous dinosaurs. It was written by Martin Lockley and others. I just want to quickly shout out to Chris from Twitter. Thanks for sharing us one of the links for his story. So when modern birds are about to mate, they sometimes gather in a big group called a lek, and they make a bunch of scrapes as a show of establishing territory before breeding and also to impress mates. But the scrapes in question weren't surrounded by any fossilized eggs, so it's not really clear if the actual nesting site is adjacent to this mating display area. But the authors propose that the scrapes may be an alternative way to determine if a site was used as a nesting colony. So I guess they assume that if they're mating there, they're probably nesting nearby. So the primary site is in Rubido Creek in western Colorado, and we talk in depth about ichnology and the science of trace fossils in episode two with Dr. Anthony J. Martin. Ichnology is all about things that are left behind 
by dinosaurs that aren't their own bones, basically, or other parts of their body. So it could be tracks, it could be coprolite, it could be things like these scratch fossils, but they're all things that they either created or left an impression or a trace, thus the trace fossils in the world. So the authors define an ichnogenus to describe the finding of these scrape fossils, and they named it ostendoichnos, meaning to show or to display, and then a trace as the second part of the word, with the ichno species being bilobatus, meaning two lobes, referencing the marks that are made by a separate feet and kind of having two parts to the scrape. So they say they are, quote, large scrapes up to two meters or about six feet in diameter, and they occur abundantly in several Cretaceous sites in Colorado, end quote. And they also say, quote, the largest site reveals about 60 scrapes on a single sandstone surface exposure up to 50 meters long and 15 meters wide, end quote, which is about 165 by 50 feet. And, quote, a second site with eight well-preserved scrapes occurs on a single sandstone surface about 20 by 5 meters, end quote. And that's about 65 by 15 feet. So it's pretty impressive how many of these things were preserved. I guess if you're comparing it to something like a trackway, it wouldn't be that uncommon to have 60 footprints in a row. But compared to a lot of the things we talk about where we might only have just one or two bones and be defining a species based on it, it's pretty remarkable to me to have 60 individual kind of replicated scrapes in a single piece, meaning 60 of those individual holes that were kind of dug. So I think it's really cool that there are so many of these different fossils so we can really get a good statistical sampling rather than just having one individual thing where you don't even know if it's just a crazy dinosaur doing something weird. It looks like it's an actual behavioral pattern. They also say that, quote, the size, depth, and distribution of these scrapes is variable. However, most typically consist of parallel double troughs comprised of multiple scrapes separated by a raised central ridge. A few show complete outlines of three-toed theropod tracks, and some show thin aprons of excavated sediment aligned with the long axis of scrapes. So basically like if you were digging and you were piling all the dirt up on one side rather than piling it up all the way around. They also point to two other sites, one each in eastern and western Colorado, where more of these fossils have been found. Quote, they constitute a previously unknown category of large dinosaurian trace fossil inferred to fill gaps in our understanding of early phases in the breeding cycle of theropods, end quote. And they're found in a specific type of rock called Dakota sandstone, which the authors say hasn't yielded many body fossil remains, but they're great for fossil remains like tracks and these traces. It's especially interesting because this is the first physical evidence that dinosaurs behaved similarly to extant birds while mating. And it's really difficult to find this kind of thing because usually any sort of behavior doesn't fossilize very well outside of tracks and a couple other simple things. So it's pretty fascinating. I did wonder if there might have been another possible reason for these scrape markings and when I first saw the article titles, I was pretty skeptical of it. But the authors do a really good job at describing why they believe so strongly that they are mating displays rather than just some other alternatives. And they talk specifically about three alternative theories that do seem like some of the more obvious ideas. 
So one of the alternative theories they talk about is that they might have been actual nest sites or nesting colonies, meaning maybe they dug these holes and that's where they kept their eggs, which wouldn't really be anything that remarkable. We've seen other nests before. They say that this is unlikely because they didn't find any indications of eggs or a nest rim. So like I was saying, they kind of dug a hole, but they piled all the dirt up on one side. And most nests that you see, they pile the dirt up around the edge of the nest to kind of protect them and prevent eggs from moving around too much. And there aren't any imprints of where eggs had been or any eggshells or anything like that. So that seems pretty unlikely that it was just a nest. Another possibility they looked at was, were the dinosaurs digging for something else, for instance, food or water or shelter? So they said, if they were digging for water, you'd expect water to pool in the bottom of the hole that they dug. And if water pooled there, it would wipe out the traces of these claw marks that they saw. So that didn't seem very likely. They said that if they were digging for food, which may actually be a pretty good guess, since there has been evidence of a Deinonychosaurid with a claw that had gone through a burrow. But in these cases, there weren't any burrows found in the proximity. And since there were so many of them, if they were digging for food, you'd expect there to be at least some burrow or you know, tunnel or something where it looked like the dinosaurs had a reason to dig for food there. So that doesn't seem too likely. And as far as shelter goes, they don't believe it resembles a likely burrow structure. And they think that burrows are pretty rare for dinosaurs anyway. So the idea that there would be so many burrows in this one little area seems a little bit weird. Another possibility was that they were territory making scrapes. And the main place we see this is with things like cats, both domestic cats and the big scary lions and stuff. When they mark their territory, they'll scratch and then they'll also mark it with urine at the same time. But the authors point out that birds are water conserving or uricothelic and no animals in that group use scent to mark their territory. Plus, this area was likely too wet for marking territory to work well anyway. So that's probably not the cause. So after all that, they think that the most likely answer is that they were making these scratches to impress females. And in modern birds, we see these large groups of males competing for a female's attention in the activity, like I said, called lecking. And the size and shape of these holes that were dug are pretty similar to what you might expect if a dinosaur was going to do some lecking. So <laughs> it makes a lot of sense that that's the most likely answer. They also said that while they were doing this lecking, they were probably also making a lot of noises and flapping their arms all over the place and doing stuff like that. But none of that fossilizes, so it's pretty cool that they found evidence of it through these scrape marks because it's the only kind of thing that would fossilize out of the process. One thing that comes to mind is the show Dinosaur, where Earl teaches his son Robbie the mating dance, and there's a lot of jumping around. Yeah, <laughs> that was the first thing I thought of, too. And then I thought, are they just saying this because of the show Dinosaur? But then it looks like there's a lot of good science behind it. The Titanosaur in the American Museum of Natural History is going on display. And the reason I said the Titanosaur is because they haven't actually given it a scientific name yet. It's going up in the American Museum of Natural History, which is Sabrina and my favorite museum. 
and it's going to be totally awesome. Actually, it is totally awesome because it went up early January 2016. It's a full-scale replica, 122 feet long of it, and it's an unnamed titanosaur from Argentina. The original fossil was discovered in 2012 in Argentina, and Peter May, president of Research Casting International, explained the process on the American Museum of Natural History website. We're going to play a little clip. We went down to Argentina and we 3D scanned all the bones in the field and in the lab. We had the whole skeleton completely digitized in four weeks. We took the data and then we carved the bones out of slabs of foam with our five-axis milling machine. We molded all the elements once they're carved up and then we have a complete copy of the skeleton and from there we can cast all the elements out of fiberglass. And then the cast gets mounted. Yeah, so it, it was a pretty involved process. It's cool that they used basically 3D printing. It was a little more complex than that because they had to CNC mill it and then they had to mold it and then finally put it all up on display and articulate it and everything. They also had to completely redo the room it was in, right? Yeah, so the room, if you've been to the American Museum of Natural History anytime recently, has a room called the Wallach Orientation Center that's on the fourth floor, kind of next to one of the halls of all the fossils. And it was basically a mostly empty room. There's a little theater, or there was a little theater screen on one side with kind of a preservation-themed video talking about, you know, why it's important to be nice to nature. And then in the middle of the room, there was what a normal person would say is a pretty large dinosaur. <laughs> it was probably like 20 feet long. Um, but this one was like a rubberized, realistic, you know, it wasn't a skeleton. It was a recreation of a dinosaur. I think it was a Borosaurus or something, some kind of sauropod. But in the middle of the room, they had to obviously take that out in order to fit this 122 foot long dinosaur in there. And even with that, its head is still sticking out of the room because it even curling it up a little bit, they couldn't get the whole thing in this orientation center. So pretty cool. They said that even though the replica is made out of relatively light materials, mostly fiberglass, they still needed to add extra steel reinforcement because it had such an extraordinarily long neck and tail. We need to make a trip back to New York sometime soon so we can see this titanosaur. Yeah, it sounds awesome. I have to mention because I keep seeing this thing everywhere and it's an inflatable T-Rex costume. So this week I saw at least five more videos of people wearing this T-Rex costume and doing all sorts of crazy things. The most impressive one so far is someone doing parkour in a gym. Then I found out why. So you can buy an inflatable T-Rex costume for about 70 to to $100 and it's actually licensed from Jurassic World. And I think it came out around the same time as Jurassic World did. So I don't know how I missed it when it came out. But it's really fun to watch people doing all these crazy things. Since it's inflatable, it's very puffy. And the head is quite a bit above your own head. You see through the neck of the T-Rex. It stands just like Barney. You know, the tail's on the ground behind you. And then the head's vertical. That way, when you're walking around in it, it pretty much covers your whole body. It's got... A small fan powered by four AA batteries to keep it looking like a dinosaur and not getting all deflated. I'm not sure exactly how comfortable it is inside it, but people seem to like it. If you can do 
I'm watching the American Ninja Warrior clip right now, and it's impressive if you could do flips and jump onto multiple objects and swing. And Yeah, he does that. hit his head a little bit because it sticks up so high above his own head. That's true, and the T-Rex head gets a little bit floppy sometimes when yeah. he's landing. But it, since it's inflatable, I think it makes it easier to do stuff like that. If you're wearing some rigid thing, it would probably knock you over if you hit the inflatable part. Including that head above your own head, it's 7 feet or 213 centimeters tall. It's 2 feet, 61 centimeters wide, and it has a 33-inch or 84-centimeter long tail. Because it's 7 feet and you look through the neck, it's probably too short for me since I'm 6'3", and it's probably too tall for Sabrina. <laughs> oh, no. That's I a bummer. We might be able to make it work. We'll have to look at it. One purchaser wrote in her review, quote, we now have both T-Rex and Godzilla costumes, and this is how disagreements will now be handled from now till the end of time. Let the good times roll. That's amazing. <laughs> I think that's pretty awesome. I think we should follow that. It does sound fun. I'd rather get two T-Rexes or maybe a T-Rex and like an Indominus Rex, but I don't know if they sell that one. Yeah, if they have another dinosaur. So it looks like they're out of stock at most places, and they're definitely very popular because I see these videos everywhere. We've been posting a few of them, too, on our social media networks. Yeah. And because of that, the price has gone from about $70 up to about $100. And even with that, it's out of stock almost everywhere. And we'll post a link to this parkour one I found today because it's by far the most impressive. It's impressive enough to be able to do those moves without a costume on. Yeah. That's what makes it really great. And that's it for our top 20 news articles of our first year. I hope you enjoyed them. We left out the dinosaur discoveries because those are covered in better detail in Sabrina's book. It's also just too hard to pick. Yeah, and they tended to be really long. So if we put in a few of those, we would have gone way over an hour and we were already over an hour. So <laughs> we didn't want to make it too long. Yeah, but it's been a great first year. As I said earlier, we've learned a lot. We've connected with some amazing people. And overall, it's been a fantastic experience. And we're so glad that we're able to keep doing this. And we hope to have another awesome year, 2016. And as always, if you're interested in supporting us and helping us get through our next year, you can go to patreon.com slash I know dino and pledge a small monthly donation, and we'd really appreciate it. Yeah, we jump up and down every time we see even a dollar, so. Yeah, it's great. <laughs> it really does make us feel warm and fuzzy inside, like we say in our Patreon video. It does. <laughs> Just a final reminder about our joint giveaway with everything Dinosaurs Weebly. You have until Friday, March 4th, and you can enter on our website. There's a blog post about it, and it's, we made it sticky, so it's at the top. Good old sticky posts. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Thanks for listening and until next time. You could tell, but 